I'll ask you to please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. Last week when we were together, or last time we were together, we looked at the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry and his preaching that John the Baptist had at the River Jordan when these would come out to him. And he was preaching to repent, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he's preaching, there are those who come out of, from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were these little, some may, they may have actually been some Pharisees and Sadducees themselves, or they may, may have been their lackeys, they may have been the underlings. Uh, they were going to report back of what they heard and what they seen. And there are those, well, let's pick up in verse 4. And our focus today is going to be on, on verses 10 to 12. But we'll, we'll, read, we'll start reading that verse 4. So Matthew 3 and verse 4 says, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then, Jer- then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And then verse 10 reads, And even now the axe is laid uh, to the root of the trees. For I say to you that God... Oh, excuse me. Let me start over. Verse 10. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing hand is in or his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barns, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I pray that God have a blessing upon his word as read and as it will be preached. I brought a couple of these hand tools that John mentions here in our text. The act is obvious and it's well known. Its design and function has been relatively unchanged for quite literally millennia. I brought one nonetheless because it's just, they're cool. I like, I like, I like axes. So, the axe is obviously, it's a single-edged item. Sometimes you'll get a double-bit axe, but it's got this sharp edge. It can be sharpened, but it is a blunt force instrument. It is a blunt force item. It is 
You're going to grab it by the handle, and you're going to come down, and you're going to swing it, and you're going to swing it with authority like you mean it, and you're going to chop the wood, you're going to chop the trunks. In this particular case, John says he's going to take the axe and take it to the root of the tree. The idea is that you're going to get down below the surface. This isn't going to be a simple pruning job. This isn't going to be a simple, okay, we're just going to shape it to make it go look this way. He is referring to that the whole thing is bad and the whole thing needs to come down. And we're going to get at not just the branch, but root and all. And we're going to take this blunt force instrument and chop it. Typically, usually, the way the axe is used, the way that it is swung, is going to be from an overhand, an overhead blow. You're going to start and you come down, and this is where you get that acceleration. You come through with the force and the power, and you're going to then either split logs with it or chop trunks. You may come out at an angle, but even, or you may come out at a more of a lateral, but even then you still to have the most force is going to come from above and it's going to chop downwards. I believe this is also then in, in a reference of the direction from which this is coming. The second item that is a of a hand tool is what this the uh, New King James refers to as a winnowing fan. Others may call it, you may see it translated as a fork. Other may call it as a shovel. It's actually a technique or procedure that is still used in some places in Africa uh, and the Middle East today. Um, it is where you would have a pile of your wheat. You just harvest your grain. You come and you bring it. And you have the, you have the threshing floor. And what they would do is you have basically like a big... Almost looks like a big, a big old spork, right? You got some, you got some forks and maybe a um, kind of more of the spoon on the back end of it. And so normally with us, when we're raking leaves, you're going to drag it this way. With a winnowing fork or a winnowing fan, they're going to shove it into that pile and then they toss it up. And they toss it up into the air. And what that does is the wheat is heavier than the chaff. The chaff is just basically like almost like a shell or a husk that's around the kernel of wheat. But it's lighter than air or it's lighter than the wheat is itself. And so they scoop in and they throw it up and it drops back down. And they scoop it up and they throw it and it drops back down. And they do this process repeatedly to get the loose Get the unprofitable, the, the stuff that doesn't have nutrients, the stuff that's not going to be used in the bread making process. They're going to get down to the fruit. The fruit of the vine or the fruit of the stalk, in this case, the wheat. There's so much illusions, there's so much reference to that idea in the Gospels of fruit of planting, of vines, and of vineyards, and of trees. In this very reference, he speaks so much of, you're going to bring fruit worthy of repentance. Here, he's talking to people that do not have a genuine, heartfelt remorse and sorrow over their sin. 
They played the game for a long time. And they're very good at playing the game. The other day, Jack and I went, we actually went out to a basketball game. And it's amazing that the, you can see how the NBA has progressed or regressed over the years, how you're going to look at it, and the way the game has been played over the decades. And it is a game that is in constant evolution. It is a game that has gone from, from long-distance shots, then they went to be able to slam dunk, because at, at the beginning of the basketball, it actually was, it was illegal to dunk. You couldn't dunk it. Um, and then it went to that you could dunk it. And then you got to a point where it was just power basketball where the biggest dude was going to slam it down into the, go down the lane and you know, dunk it and poster, you know, poster some kid that's in his way. But then we see like the past few years of these guys that are just, like travel, dribble, double dribble, carry over that they're taking like 15 steps and still has the ball. They pick the ball up and they do like this and then they bounce the ball again and do like this and then they're going to pass it and then they're going to fake an injury. They're flopping all over the place because they're playing the game. They're playing the game. They understand the rules and then they're going to exploit those rules. A lot of these guys are going up for a layup now and then they are intentionally making contact with a defender. And then the shooter is intentionally going to take a hard foul and he's going to flop and cry and, and you know, have his mama come and kiss his boo-boo and then the ref is going to call you know, M1. That's part of the game now. I think that's going to change eventually. But I say all that to say that the Pharisees understood the game. They were masters at playing this game. They understood the, 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 the necessity of the appearance of holiness. They understood that they had to make their faces look a certain way. They had to say the right words. They had to be on point. Because they had this, this position of prestige. This may shock you. You may already know this. But the Pharisees actually used to be the good guys. The Pharisees actually started out with the idea that we believe in the law of God. We believe that we are to keep God's law. We believe that God gave us this Torah. God gave us this instruction. And we are to be separated unto our God. In fact, that's where, the, that's where the root word for Pharisee comes from. Is that root of being separated. Being separated from the world. Separated from ugliness. Separated from the wickedness. And separated to God. In some ways, the Pharisees also were fundamentalists. The Pharisees believed what the Scripture said. Or at least at one point in time, they, they, they did. They believed that God created the world. They believed that there was going to be a resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in a devil. They believed in, in God being the judge. At one time, we would have probably rooted for the Pharisees. 
because they were taking a stand for traditional Judaism. The problem is they shifted from having an honorable view of God's law to then elevating their keeping of the law. They had also the transition from honoring and respecting the God that gave the law to there is a shift now to honor and respecting the people who had the appearance of keeping that law. So you go from love the Lord your God, keep His commandments, be ye holy as I am holy. And then there is this shift somewhere, somehow along the lines, it happened to them, and, and dare I say it could happen to us, that they shifted from wanting to obey God's law to wanting to be observed by men by observing a form of the law. This is what John is confronting them about. This is what all the prophets confronted the people of God about. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote, is that, yes, I can attest that they have knowledge. I can attest that they have zeal. And in fact, they are exceedingly zealous. But they're zealous for the wrong things and for the wrong reasons. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. The power thereof is God himself. They deny God. How did they deny God? They deny God in their hearts because they don't love the Lord their God that gave them the law. They love keeping their traditions. They love playing the game. They love, if we go back to the, that NBA reference, they love the flop. This is what John is bringing out. He says, you guys are sniffing out this religious experience that these people are having. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were jealous of that. They were upset by this. They are like, wait a minute. We didn't authorize you to, to put on this ceremony. We are the master of ceremonies. We are, we are the ones who say what we can and can't do. And we do it best. And we have to give permission for these people to come out and worship. Or come out and do this ritual. Whatever it is, this thing that is, that's going on here. And John confronts the hardness of their hearts. And John says, the axe is laid at the root. I love the way the New Living Translation has this, word, has this verse worded. I was always very... When, when, the, when the NLT first came out, I was very hesitant, very, very reluctant to want to pick it up. The original Living Bible, done back in the early 70s, um, was a paraphrase. Okay? Kenneth Taylor, um, he paraphrased it, and it was popular for a while, or kind of had, some people started reading it, but it was a paraphrase. Well, then you had sometime in the late 90s, early 2000s, you had a translation team actually do a translation, and that's what the New Living Translation is. I feel that there's some things that they just do a fantastic job, and there's other things that, eh, they, they kind of miss the boat. 
But this is one verse I believe that they did a fantastic job of, of, of getting to the meaning of what John's message is. It says, verse, so I'm going to, in John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 3, I'm sort of reading in verse 8. He says, Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. King James, New King James, and most of the major translations have it something worded as bring fruits worthy of repentance. Fruit worthy of repentance. Okay, well, that, what does that mean? Well, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and you have turned to God. That's what repentance is. Is that turning away? Is that turning from and turning towards? You want to say that you love God and you have been, you have been freed from your sin? That God has forgiven your sin? Prove it by the way that you live your life. And you live this life by that you have loved the Lord your God. You have placed God above everything and everyone. That He indeed is your first. He is Alpha and Omega. Then it goes on to say in verse 9, Don't just say to each other, We're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. And verse 10 says, even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. This is what John is, comes preaching. John is preaching a message of God's wrath. Now, this was received. We can see that we say, it says that many people were getting baptized. Many people were coming out and hearing John preach and actually preach. Preaching their sin. Preaching the wrath of God. Preaching the judgment of God. And saying that he who is going to execute judgment, his instrument of wrath, his instrument of judgment is already ready to go. Sometimes if you've ever used an axe, a lot of times you line up your shot, right? You get that blade right there and you get it. So, okay, that's where I need to chop it. And you get it. This is that idea of it being laid at the root. It's already been lined up. It's ready to go. You have, you've gotten the, the, the trajectory is there. And he who is wielding it is ready to let fly. This is what John is telling him is that it is God himself who is the axe wielder. It is God himself who is going to be the wood chopper. This is why I mentioned in the beginning the idea of this idea of the, how that axe, it comes down. I believe this is an indication that it is being wielded by God and it's also an indication of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ of Him coming down to the earth to deal with the heart of these people. Because this is what is talking about the root. The root is the heart. It is the heart is that they don't love God. They may be keeping some of his rules. Or they may be keeping 600 other rules. 
but they're not doing it because they love. Some, some preachers and some theologians have, have come up with this idea that this reference of chopping the tree or chopping the root is referring to the Old Covenant sacrificial system. They believe it's referring to temple worship, temple, the temple sacrifice and the Arianic priesthood. And they believe that this is an indication of a new dispensation. They believe that this is the indication that the dispensation is going to start with a severing, the severing of the old from the new, and we're now going to be in the new covenant. I don't think that's what this is talking about. And perhaps I'm wrong on this, but I believe that exactly what is talking about is are the individuals that's in front of John, the people that are in front of John. This is what he says. He just got done saying, you live your life like you have been changed. You live your life that is bearing fruit, that the fruit of repentance is manifest. The fruit of a change in you is obvious, that you are living your life, that you love God. He is challenging individuals. He goes on to say that, that's what he goes on to say. Is that, then don't say that we have Abraham for our fathers. So that again, he's talking about persons and personal excuses. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, after he says the axe is laid to the root of the trees, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He is telling them of... I believe the permanency of this. They are being called to repent. They are being called to escape from the wrath to come. And once that wrath does come, and once that axe is, 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 is brought down, and it is laying on the root where it is now severs, it severs that connection. That should stop. That's just step one. Step two is to be thrown into the fire. It's the temporal and then the permanency. The immediate, the immediate is the death. And then the afterwards is hell and the lake of fire. This is what John is preaching. It is what John is warning them. Then, next in verse 11, he goes on to say, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. John always knew his place. John always understood that the Christ would supersede him. And he wanted that. He longed for that. And he preached not only to the crowd, but he also taught his own disciples. John had disciples. And he would have to teach this lesson to them on more than one occasion that it is Jesus who we have been waiting for. John was just the messenger. John was just the preparer. John was just the forerunner. But it was Christ. It was the Lord Jesus 
indeed who they needed to be saved by. John mentions this, this, this ritualistic baptism, but then he also speaks of a baptism that is going to be ushered in by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He says, There is one coming who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So two things here, and I'll, go, I'll, try, to, I'll try to not, I'll try to go be quick, but don't hurry. I'll look at this as one. There's a promise that not only is Jesus going to come, but also the Holy Spirit will also come, but it's going to be subsequent. So you have God has sent John, and then he has sent Jesus, and then Jesus is going to come, and then Jesus is going to baptize him with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had been upon people before. We know that in the Old Covenant, there are examples of when the Spirit would come upon somebody. In fact, the King David, King, or D David would say in, in Psalm 51, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. There was times where certain individuals would have the anointing of the Spirit on them for a purpose or for a season. But then that Holy Spirit would then could be taken away as far as the blessing part of it goes. He says, you are going to be, this Jesus is going to come and he is going to put you under the authority of the Holy Spirit. This is what baptism symbolizes, okay? If you would take your Bibles and turn over to Corinthians, and over to 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we know that now in the New Covenant, we know that because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, because he shed his blood for our sins, and that all who repent and believe will be saved, all who call upon the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior will be saved, that we come into the baptismal waters to signify, to profess faith in Jesus Christ, to profess faith that he is our Savior, and we believe that he is a risen Lord. So our baptism you know, you guys have heard that old adage before. It is the outward display of the inward reality. It is the outward display of the inward reality. That we have already been saved. That Jesus has already saved us. By grace through faith, we have been saved. And now we're making a public profession of faith by going under the baptismal waters. Okay? Something else that baptism does symbolize, though, is a symbol, is a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of authority. This is, in, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10.1 says, Moreover, brethren, 
I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So verse 2 says they were all baptized into Moses. Again, what that means is that they're under the authority of Moses. When John says they're going to be baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit, this is a reference to all who are the children of God are led by the Spirit of God. All who are the children of God are led by the Spirit of God. Where we've looked to Jesus Christ as indeed as our Lord. He is the Master. He is the King. But the reason that we can call Him Christ, the reason why we can call Him King, why we do call Him Lord and Savior, is because the work the Holy Spirit has done in us. When we talk about the trifold, or that we talk about the triune God of salvation, we do believe that Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we believe that these three are one. We do believe that these three are active in our salvation. They are active in our life. And that you cannot have Christianity if you take one of them away. We must believe in one God who exists in three persons. We believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Not only are we going to have this Holy Spirit come and lead us and guide us and teach us, and also be our paraclete, or be the comforter. Something else that is going to happen is there is going to be a baptism of fire. There is going to be trial. There is going to be tribulation. There is going to be persecution. There is going to be refinement. And we will go through the refiner's fire. We will go through that refiner's fire. There's times as a Christian that you may have felt the up and down. You may feel, I've, you, probably, you may have used this expression yourself, of being on a roller coaster. When I was a kid, you know, growing up in California, and we would, our summer camps was always up in the mountains. We'd go up into the mountains, and we'd have summer camp there, and man, we are just loving Jesus, and kumbaya, and everything is great, and happy, happy. And then you start coming back down the mountain at the end of camp, and you get back down into where you can actually, you can see what you're breathing, because how bad the, how bad the you know, L.A. County smog is, and you get down, and so you're on literally this high. You're, on, you're up on the mountain. You're on the spiritual high. And as you descend back down into reality, your, spiritual, your spirituality also seems to descend. Um, I just lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Oh, the, up and, the ups and the downs. That's what I was talking about. The ups and the downs. 
So there are times where you, can, you may feel like this, this roller coaster. You may feel like a spiritual roller coaster where there's times where you just feel like, man, you and God are just beating up the devil, right? You guys are just clicking along. Everything's going great. It's wonderful. You're, <clears throat> you're sharing the gospel. Maybe you're even leading people to Christ. You're having wonderful prayer sessions. You're just feeling on fire, on fire for the Lord. But there's going to be times where you feel like you've never heard the gospel before. There may feel times where the darkness has enveloped you. That you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And you do not see a light. You, have, you feel almost hopeless. One of the things when you understand, I think, that process of that winnowing fork. That process of that winnowing fan. That as they do it and they scoop it up. And they toss it up in the air. And intentionally made to drop back down to the ground. And it comes up again. And they throw it in the air. And it's dropped back down. But that wheat is what drops down. And the wheat is what stays. The wheat is what is collected. There's a reason why Jesus uses a reference about the wheat and the tares. They will grow up alongside one another. In any given congregation, in the church, you are going to have the wheat and the tares. You are going to have both grow up together. And it won't be until the end of the age when God sends the reapers. We'll get to that sometime later as we go through the book of Matthew here. That they're going to be gathered One is going to be gathered up to the Lord. He's going to bundle us up. He's going to catch us up. That's what the word word we have here is that we'll be caught up to meet the Lord. We're going to be gathered together to meet the Lord. But before that final catching up, there's going to be times when we are going, we are feels like we are being through tempest tossed where we feel that up and down and that may be that may be the Lord who is shaking you out now don't get me wrong don't misunderstand what I'm saying here we know from the gospel to John that Jesus says I hold them in my hand they are in my father's hand I love my sheep I give my life for the sheep None can snatch them away. They are held securely, lovingly, eternally in the hand of Almighty God. And none can snatch them away. But you may have some dross that has to get shaken off. You You might have some chaff that needs to get blown off. These trials and tribulations, this, tri- this baptism of fire is designed to refine you for the glory and the purposes of God. This is what John is telling these people. Jesus is coming. There's a, the axe of God is laid at the root. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and he's going to baptize you with fire. And then one day, there's going to be a gathering up 
of the wheat, and then there's going to be a gathering of the tares. Next week, Lord willing, as we, we'll get, we get back into Matthew here, we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus. So we have John is baptizing. Then he's going to talk about that Jesus is going to come. He's going to baptize his people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then Jesus himself is going to be baptized by John. This is a bit of a spoiler alert, but the reason Jesus was baptized is different than the reason that you and I get baptized. Okay? So I hope, I hope you could come back next week and we look at that. We look at the baptism of Jesus. But for now, to close for this week, as John has pointed his audience, so too we are pointed to Jesus. He points to the one who is coming after him. And I believe every preacher, myself included, has that same obligation and a sacred duty to also point you to Jesus. He is the one who has died for your sin. He is the one who also has the wrath to come. He is the Savior and He is the Judge. He is He, he, is he who will rule over all. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But I ask you today, ask you today in this auditorium as we sit here, have you bowed the knee of your heart? Have you in your heart, in your heart of hearts, gone to Jesus for, as, as being your Savior, your Savior, as your Lord? Are you playing the game? Or are you a genuine believer in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted Christ and Christ alone? When you're on those, when you're on that up and down, when you're in that winnowing fan, and you feel like you are being tossed, are you looking unto Jesus and resting in his hand of grace? Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I ask that you would please bless us, O oh Lord. And Lord, I pray that you, by your grace, would preserve us as we persevere. Lord, we have many trials and tribulations to go through to enter the kingdom of God. Lord, we do thank you that for our Jesus who loves us, that Jesus shed his own blood for our sins, the Jesus who calls us his own. And Lord, I pray as we go through these ups and downs and we go through these trials, that we would ever cling to Christ and look to him as our, for our final deliverance. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you guys would stand and we'll sing this closing song here. 255, 255, nothing but the blood.
as I was looking at this the song selection, and I felt this was appropriate to go with John the Baptist's sermon. These others that were relying on so many other things other than the grace of God, other than the atoning work of Christ. This is all our hope and plea, is Jesus. There's nothing that can save you but your faith in Jesus Christ. Number 255, nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the blood that makes me white as
opportunity to um, go forth and, and be that light um, for you this week. And help us to um, share and, and guide us in the words that, that we need to say to, to be that, that outward example for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.